It's Tuesday, May 5th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. As several companies are in the race to create antibody tests to get people back to work and end lockdowns, there's a greater need for the blood of those who have recovered from COVID-19. Other companies are stepping in to solicit blood donations from patients and then selling the blood to labs and manufacturers at a premium. The more antibodies in the blood, the higher the price. Some samples are selling anywhere from $350 to $40,000. Some of the companies involved say they are not profiteering and the steps in obtaining blood is very complex. Jane Bradley, investigative reporter for the New York Times, joins us for the lucrative trade in human blood samples. Next. Florida has begun to reopen the state for business as they were able to dodge some of the worst of the coronavirus. Despite not issuing early statewide stay-at-home orders, many of the decisions were left to local authorities to shut down. A lesser population density and warmer climate could also have played a role in fewer infections. But one other factor, there was an attitude change in Florida residents themselves. Smartphone data shows that by mid-March, before stay-at-home orders were put in place, residents had already begun to hunker down and limit movements. Ariane Campo-Flores, reporter for the Wall Street Journal, joins us for how Florida made it this far. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. And really, I came to know about this company by a British scientist who had been quoted some pretty, what he said were pretty outrageous prices for blood samples that he needed to develop coronavirus tests. Joining us now is Jane Bradley, investigative reporter for the New York Times. Thanks for joining us, Jane. Hi, thanks for having me. We wanted to talk about the pretty lucrative trade in human blood samples that's going on right now during the coronavirus pandemic. You know, there are several companies that are in the race to create antibody tests to get people back to work, to end these lockdowns, but they all need blood samples from those who have recovered from COVID-19, and that's in very short supply. And right now there's a bunch of different companies that are soliciting donations for the blood, selling them to other labs and testing companies so that they can make all these tests. And sometimes they're making quite a premium off of this. Jane, tell us a little bit more about this. So basically these human blood samples, which come from people who've tested positive for coronavirus are needed by all sorts of people for all sorts of things. And there's a whole network of companies across the world who are ready to supply, to source and supply those blood samples. So the company that first came to my attention is an obscure Californian firm called Cantor BioConnect. And really, I came to know about this company by a British scientist who had been quoted some pretty, what he said were pretty outrageous prices for blood samples that he needed to develop coronavirus tests. And he had been sent a price list by Cantor BioConnect, the Californian company, for blood samples, which range from what industry experts said were kind of the more reasonable prices of anything from $350 all the way up to $3,000 for a premium sample. So that's a blood sample with a high level of antibodies in it, which is more useful for researchers, all the way up to a pretty extraordinary $40,000 for blood samples for a single donor. 
And those prices kind of went up by the week. On the 31st of March, they started off at $350 per milliliter, which is basically the equivalent of less than a quarter of a teaspoon. But then they went up by more than 40% over the next three weeks, all the way up to $500 for the cheapest sample. Everything is in short supply. You talk about some of the scientists and doctors there in Britain and they're used to paying maybe $50 or something for a blood sample. And in some cases, they're being quoted almost $950 for blood samples. So they're getting kind of this sticker shock when they're really in desperate need of this blood so that they can make those tests, help make the treatments and all of that. The experts, the scientists I spoke to in Britain were the ones who were particularly shocked by these kind of prices. That's because normally in the UK, it's all kind of handled through the public health authorities or they source it directly from hospitals. And that's either for free or kind of a maximum at cost price, like you said, of around $50. Now, this is before a pandemic, so there are going to be additional costs Um, related to just how infectious the disease is. But even in the US, industry experts, regulators, test manufacturers, scientists were used to buying these blood samples, still said those prices of $3,000, $2,000, and especially $40,000 was far higher than they would even expect to pay. And the US has a much more commercial market for this kind of thing. So explain to us a little bit how this works. There's a company such as you mentioned, Cantor BioConnect. They'll solicit some donations from people that have had the virus. And the assumption is they have antibodies in that blood so they can resell that. So they'll solicit those. Then they'll resell all that blood at a premium. And uh, you've gotten some comment, especially from Cantor BioConnect, basically saying, you know, they're not profiteering, but they were soliciting people on social media, offering them even $100 for a donation. I think they even had an online ad that said they were associated with the White House Coronavirus Task Force. That's exactly right. So these smaller companies basically source the samples literally by going on Twitter, on Facebook and advertising primarily on social media. And they say, look, we're trying to help medical researchers develop tests. There's a shortage of these blood samples. Do you want to help science by donating your blood? And one of the women who had agreed to donate her blood, Alicia Jenkins, her friend passed on the advert to her. And she had just recently recovered from coronavirus and, you know, described these really horrific symptoms of being sat in a boiling hot bath and still shivering. The chills were that bad. Then fevers of 103 degrees, headaches, uh, nosebleeds. And really that memory was kind of what was at the forefront of her mind, she said, when she agreed to donate her blood. She wanted to help others who were more vulnerable than her who might benefit from her blood sample. And that's really the reasoning of a lot of these donors. They donate their blood not to make money, but because they want to help other people. And Alicia herself was said she was shocked by the 40,000 prices, the $3,000 prices that were being charged for blood like she'd agreed to donate by Cantor BioConnect and decided she didn't want to have anything to do with it and wanted to donate to a non-profit. But these companies like Cantor BioConnect can only really get these blood samples out to a wide market with the help of this web of middlemen. And there are all these companies all over the world that Cantor BioConnect, similar companies, will also use that help them get their blood samples out to a global market. Now, One of those companies was a major biotech firm in India, and they were acting as a middle 
strongman for Cantor by Connect. And their prices were even more shocking, given the fact that they weren't really doing very much in terms of costs of sourcing the blood or stuff like that. I think that Indian company even had a $50,000 price tag for a single sample, which was $10,000 more than Cantor BioConnect had. Exactly. And this Indian company, you know, they didn't source the blood. They didn't even ship it out. They basically acted as kind of a middleman marketer. In their words, they were just a facilitator because they had this huge network of labs that they could connect Cantor BioConnect with. So their prices, even the cheapest, doubled from $350 to $950. The premium inventory increased to $5,000 from $3,000. And like you said, the most expensive went up to $50,000, which was just an amount that no one I spoke to said they'd ever heard of before. Are we still hearing, though, that the blood is still at least making its way to labs and scientists that, that need it? It's not kind of just falling by the wayside or anything like that? No, there's definitely no suggestion of that. These are legitimate companies and they do, you know, they are really trying to get these blood samples to scientists, tips, manufacturers who need it. And Cantor BioConnect itself said that they had sold blood samples to one of the world's largest test manufacturers themselves, but didn't want to name who that was. As I mentioned earlier, just that these notions of profiteering, I know you spoke to people from Cantor. How do they react when they hear these types of allegations? All the companies involved, Cantor BioConnect and AbbVie Chemical, both deny any kind of profiteering. Cantor itself said that its prices were basically directly related to the high costs of its supply chain. And they listed finding donors, which we know it does through social media, testing the samples and things like safety costs and logistics. And they said that they make up to 40% profit on the project overall, but would it name specific profit margins for samples like that $40,000 sample. Advi, on the other hand, said that basically the company didn't sell any blood samples itself, and it merely acted as a facilitator for products that manufacturers might need. And it said it hadn't successfully sold any of Cantor BioConnect's blood samples yet, so hadn't yet made a profit. Jane Bradley investigative reporter for the New York Times. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Tomorrow is just, just one step. It's certainly not the Florida that we had in February, but uh, I think that we obviously want to get uh, get to where we're, we're back in the saddle doing a lot of great things. Joining us now is Ariane Campo-Flores, reporter for the Wall Street Journal based in Miami. Thanks for joining us, Ariane. Sure, my pleasure. I wanted to talk about Florida and how they've gone through this whole coronavirus pandemic. They're actually already opening up some stuff as of Monday. Some restaurants and stores can reopen with about 25% of their indoor capacity. Schools, bars, gyms, salons, those are still closed, but it's kind of this first phase of reopening. But when coronavirus is making its way towards Florida, there was a lot of public health experts that were sounding the alarms because of the state's large senior population. They thought it was going to be a huge hotspot, just like New York. But as time has gone on, they largely avoided that fate. They've been doing fairly well through all of this. And uh, Ariane, you wrote an article, Smart or Lucky, How Florida Dodged the Worst of This. So Ariane, tell us a little bit about it. Was it smart? Was it lucky? What did they do? So what the governor in Florida was widely and persistently criticized for not taking a more uniform approach to locking down the state and implementing a stay-at-home order. What he did instead was to defer to local governments 
to make those decisions for themselves. He did do some things that have been praised as early actions, um, in particular how he moved relatively quickly to cut off access to nursing homes and assisted living facilities and to really lock those down because of how vulnerable that population is. But in terms of the stay-at-home orders for residents at large, that was really up to the locals. And what ended up happening is that in particularly hard-hit areas like Miami Beach, Miami-Dade County, Broward County, Fort Lauderdale area, those areas did move relatively quickly. Florida became very famous for having these pictures of partying spring breakers, which were very unsettling to large parts of the country. What happened is that that created a lot of alarm among local officials. And so that was relatively quickly shut down within days after that. So this critical period of about March 15th to March 22nd was really a, a clampdown. But that was done based on the actions of what local and county officials were doing. That was not something that was being directed or pushed by the governor. So I think in that respect, sort of fortunate that that turned out the way that it did. One of the things that a lot of people point to is population density. When we're talking about places like New York, everybody is packed in really tight and you just really have no option but to be around people. In Florida, it's such a big state, it varies a lot. you know. And as you mentioned, some of the local mayors in some of the more populous areas, they sh- moved quickly to shut things down. But in other areas of the state where you didn't really need it, the governor hadn't put any stay-at-home orders in place. So they were able to kind of operate a little more freely. You referred to like a blanket stay-at-home order as a blunt instrument. Why would you put in place the same thing in, say, Miami Beach that you would put in place in one of the many more rural counties that have been much less affected by this? And so density is an issue. It's something that public health experts have raised as another potential factor that has played a role in this. Florida has dense pockets. It has some dense urban cores, but it's largely a state that has a lot of sprawl. It has a lot of suburban tract housing and very limited public transit. And so those were factors that, at least in this instance, seem to have helped out the state. One of the other major factors that a lot of people point to is this change in behavior by Floridians. Uh, People are looking at smartphone data to see how people were moving, if they were staying home. And they said that by mid-March, and this was obviously before the statewide stay-at-home order was put in place, People were already starting to hunker down. And we keep talking about the senior population there. It's about 20% of Florida. I mean, maybe they just started seeing everything happening across the country and knowing that they were in the most at-risk category. And then they just started staying home. So even the people of Florida started doing this on their own. That's one of the most interesting aspects of this and reporting on it, which is that even though the governor took weeks beyond when people thought he should have, to put in a stay-at-home order, even in the absence of that. And Floridians in general really started hunkering down in mid-March. Right around March 15th is when you start to see a really significant decline in mobility as measured by locations of cell phones. And so what that suggests is that people were taking it upon themselves. They were alarmed enough by what they were seeing in news reports And this was a period in which you were seeing news reports of just the horrible situation in Italy, you know, military trucks ferrying coffins, doctors having to make really difficult decisions about rationing care. That was getting a lot of coverage. There was also also a period in which there was growing alarm about what was going to happen in New York City. And Florida is a place that has a lot of connections to New York. 
And so that seems to have generated this response in people to just whatever officials were saying, they were going to take it upon themselves anyway to lock down. You know, one of the interesting things I noted in your report that it was that the state contacted researchers at the University of Florida Emerging Pathogens Institute to get help on what to do when there were still very few cases. And they wrote a one-page assessment that said, shut everything down now or you're going to start seeing huge community spread and deaths. But the uh, state officials said, you know what, we're tracing everything. We're not finding a lot of community spread. And that's why DeSantis, the governor there, took a more targeted approach to just the hard hit counties and everything else kind of followed. This is what we're kind of seeing from all of this. So even despite some early recommendations to start shutting things down, he resisted still. There was concern among these public health experts, these epidemiologists, these modelers, deep concern that the state was not taking this seriously enough. And so when the state reached out to ask for some guidance from this group, and this is an institute at the University of Florida that specializes in this, the researchers made clear that, in their opinion, the state really needed to act quickly and aggressively to cancel mass gatherings, get people at home, cancel schools, etc., and really implement aggressive social distancing. And they warned that, if not, there was the likelihood of more than a 1,000 deaths over the course of the following month. And that is actually what happened. Deaths have now topped 1,300. And the state certainly has come out much better than a lot of the early modeling was projecting and a lot better than a lot of people feared. But, you know, that is still a significant number of people. Right. But, uh, yeah, as you noted, the governor and they felt the approach that they were taking was the one that made the most sense. And so they essentially did not take action in response to these warnings that were raised by these experts. Testing is still a huge issue. I think experts say there needs to be 32,000 tests a day to detect and respond to any flare-ups that might be occurring. Where is Florida at with testing? According to one official who was addressing this recently, he said it basically needs to double in terms of capacity. And so the state is trying very hard to do that. This is a very challenging environment for any state, any governor. There's just a deep shortage of, of kits and of supplies. But they have been steadily ramping that up. And so you need to have that infrastructure in place to be able to quickly detect any new outbreaks or flare-ups and be able to then do contact tracing and track down and isolate the folks that infected people may have had contact with. So some people believe that it is too early to be talking about a reopening of the state until you have that firmly in place. But what the state is doing is going ahead with a very gradual reopening. And Governor DeSantis has been more cautious about it than some other governors in the South have been, for instance, in, in Georgia and in other states where they're moving more quickly to open things up. In Florida, it is going very slowly. This first phase is a gradual reopening of retail stores and restaurants outside of South Florida. So the South Florida counties are carved out of this and they need to remain under these stay-at-home orders. There will be almost undoubtedly new infections are gonna, that are going to crop up, and the state needs to very effectively clamp down on those. And so there's understandable concern about whether the state is going to really be able to avoid a potentially more lethal second wave. Arian Campo-Flores, reporter with The Wall Street Journal based in Miami. Thank you very much for joining us. Sure thing. It was my pleasure. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. 
leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.